You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live every Thursday, so subscribe to us at IEN Magazine on YouTube to get a notification when we go live. Jeff, really excited. Episode 101, only 99 more to the next threshold. <laughs> it's a new season. Yeah, it's a new season. Season two of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. 100 episodes is our season? I guess. I don't know. It's... Do podcasts have seasons? No. I mean, maybe if we they were can. like a serial. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like if we just filmed them all in a bunch and then. I don't know. There's just like, it's not like we're storytelling here. Right. There's no natural conclusion. Yeah. M- maybe at 200, we'll roll over to season two. There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, before we get started, we have a word from an old friend, Oil Eater. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. And we're back. Our first story this week is about Amazon and Salesforce. Amazon and Salesforce cut jobs in latest tech worker purge. Amazon and Salesforce are the latest U.S. tech companies to experience major job cuts. The companies need to trim payroll that expanded quickly during the pandemic. Amazon is cutting 18,000 jobs. It is the largest culling in company history. But remember that the company employs about 1.5 million people around the world. So that's about 1.2% of its workforce. The layoffs will mostly hit Amazon's brick and mortar stores like Amazon Fresh and Amazon Go, as well as the human resources department. You hate to see it. Salesforce is cutting 10% of its workforce, some 8,000 employees. It's the biggest cut in the company's 23-year history. Salesforce has had some unrest at the top. Co-CEO Brett Taylor left and Slack co-founder Stuart Butterfield left about two years after the company's nearly $28 billion acquisition. Salesforce workers will get about five months of pay, health insurance, and career resources. Amazon is also offering a, quote, separation payment, transitional health insurance benefits, and job placement support. Jeff, do you think that career resources, job placement support has ever helped anybody? I don't know. These are some not some bad benefits that these folks are getting. I think you're going to get into that in a little bit to, uh, when they walk out the door. So not right. too bad. So can be pretty helpful, I would think, in this case, for sure. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of interesting when you look at these two companies, very entrepreneurial-focused, 
very tech focused. They sort of fit the um, fit the mold for that prototype, you know, Silicon Valley type of entity that people want to aspire to. Uh, Salesforce in particular is interesting. Obviously, we've had some personal dealings with them, personal mm-hmm. frustrations, if you will. Yes. But that's a company that has grown to a point now where they are in the tens of billions in terms of revenue, but they have really tight margins. We're looking at best probably around 6% operating margin. So in order to make those billions, they've got to invest those billions of dollars. And you're not producing a product. You're talking about investing in people, salaries, things of that nature. So these cutbacks really are focused on profitability. Because after all of these years of investing and acquisitions and all this other stuff, these people who have put the money into a company like Salesforce, they want to start seeing something back. <clears throat> they want to see the payback a little bit. So then they have Salesforce has been very profitable in the last couple of years. So they want to keep that going. Yeah. A similar dynamic with, excuse me, <clears throat> with Amazon. Obviously, they were growing and growing and growing. <clears throat> in 2020 alone, they hired almost half a million people. Yeah. So obviously that's slowed down. They have also become accustomed to actually making money. They want to continue doing that. (laughs) So where's the first place that you look to do that potentially? Again, Amazon doesn't produce any product. It's in headcount. So it's just interesting to see sort of the transition of these two companies from we got to grow, we got to acquire, we got to keep moving and going to saying, hey, we need to take a step back. We need to maintain all this success that we've had in terms of profitability for our sales force, for, or excuse me, for our, um, our shareholders and everybody else who's counting on that. We have to be a little more responsible. So it's, it's sort of a growing pain, if you will, for both yeah. of these companies, and it's hitting at an interesting time. We've seen with other folks as well. You know, you had mentioned we've worked with Salesforce, and there was a shocking level of dysfunction. Uh, I mean, likely grow, likely due to growing pains, growing too fast, um, and not properly integrating staff following acquisitions. Anna, it feels like we talk about this problem all the time. There's an acquisition. It doesn't work out, or mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's not seamless. There's a lot of growing pains. Why is it that it's always difficult and there hasn't been like a process that's really been refined refined to streamline that sort of thing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think Amazon in particular has a lot going on here. You know, Andy Jassy blamed in November when these were some layoffs were announced as being forthcoming, kind of Mm -hmm. said economic conditions was the reason. Right. That's like a big, big term (laughs) with a lot of implications. Um, You know, for, for one, I know that companies like Amazon benefited immensely from the pandemic, that e-commerce boom that we saw. We've seen a few high-profile companies, more than a few, um, that that benefited from the work-from-home surge, the delivery everything, uh, invest heavily, and then have to walk back some of that in in the months and years since that was at its its peak. So I think that's some of what we're seeing here. Uh, What I found interesting in the case of Amazon specifically is that so many of these 18,000 layoffs are coming from their brick and mortar stores, as you mentioned. Right. Um, You know, I think trimming the fat at a corporate level doesn't necessarily uh, provide a broad indication of what a company's strategy is. But in this case, I think it it did get my attention a little bit seeing that that so many layoffs were coming from that area. Um, earlier this year, Amazon announced that it would close all of its brick-and-mortar bookstores, four-star shops, pop-ups to focus more on its grocery stores, convenience stores, and Amazon-style stores. But according to Retail Info Systems, I don't know if you guys read that, (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, expansion plans for Amazon Fresh, its grocery store, which first opened in 2020, um, seem to have stalled. Uh, Amazon's pivot from rapid expansion to cost cutting, they said, has left Amazon Fresh stores ready to open but not open across the country. So the company has 44 stores right now in eight states plus D.C., but they haven't opened a new fresh store since September. Okay. Um, and that's despite what appears to be seven locations that are fully built out and just not open yet. Why is that? Is that is it an inventory issue? Because, I mean, in terms of staffing them, these are like cashierless stores, right? Right. So exactly right. So that's one of the problems um, from reports. It's kind of suggesting that the technology behind that walking out function yeah, yeah. where they just charge your account um, – they just can't they can't get the components to build oh, that out in all these okay. stores. So it's a supply chain issue for sure. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's reflective of some of those challenges and maybe causing some of that pullback from from Amazon is that um, you know, that physical storefront thing that they had planned to ramp up quickly, they just can't. Right. So um, I don't know. I think that, you know, we 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 hear them say something like economic conditions. I think this is a supply chain issue as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, of course, there's a lot of other burdens that are facing these companies, as Jeff alluded to. So it's kind of a mixed bag for Amazon, I think. So it sounds like for Amazon that maybe this is more of a temporary problem until the supply chain problems are remedied. I mean, if they have, would you say like how many stores ready to go? They're just kind of waiting on technology, or Seven, are they just yeah. going to divest of all that? I, I don't know. It's I, To me, it indicates maybe a pause, okay, right? right. Um, I doubt that they are like, you know, going to flee this this vertical, this plan that they've put a lot of money and time into. But um, but yeah, you wonder if like how big of a pause if they're going to lay off all these people. I don't know, like what, what that's going to take. But See, I think I could go the other way. <clears throat> you look at Amazon employing 1.5 million people. Mm-hmm. If they are implementing a lot of these technologies, it's going to streamline their operations in the warehouse, at the retail level, and every place else. This might be just the start. Yeah. I mean, there's such a paradigm shift, I think, for these companies. And I think it sets a really a positive example for a lot of other tech companies to be aware of the fact that, hey, at some day, at some point, you're going to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Oh, and all yeah. those people have invested in your company. They're going to want to see something back. Yeah. So you do have to be a little bit more uh, financially responsible, I guess. Yeah. So it sets a good precedent for cutting jobs is what you're saying is what I think you said. <laughs> oh, yeah. man, you're both pro or wait, you're both Ant- anti-job. anti-jobs. No, oh. I would like to. It's 2023. If anyone else <laughs> would like to wear the crown of being anti-jobs on this podcast, it should be Jeff. You're handing it over to Jeff. That's so yep. nice. Um, I'm going to put the caveat, anti-tech jobs. Oh, okay. We'll do that. Okay. Um, well, it looks like Amazon's not going to run out of people after all, at least in the interim, <laughs> which was a legitimate concern by the company <laughs> a year or two ago. That's true. That's yeah. true. They were very concerned about hiring at that time. Yeah. Um, so I was actually, I didn't hear about the supply chain issues. That is a shock to me. I thought that maybe the cashierless stores or stores with no checkouts um, maybe was a miss. But apparently they're just kind of in a holding pattern. So, well, you, it could it could be a miss. We don't really know. I mean, if they can't sub out any of these components, yeah. uh, you know, maybe this is very finicky and difficult technology. I don't know. Um, Salesforce founder and now sole CEO Mark Benioff was uh, quoted saying. As our revenue accelerated through the pandemic, we hired too many people leading into this economic downturn we're now facing, and I take responsibility for that. I just wanted to note that finally a CEO came out and just flat out said, we hired too many people. That's my fault. I mismanaged, and you know it's on me. Whereas normally it's the economic landscape and the conditions, and they're just talking around the whole, it's anybody's fault except mine. Does he... Yeah. 
Are there any repercussions for him? Well, yeah, a lot of people are angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just lost like, a little luster off of his star. A bit I guess of awkwardness you could say. At, at those meetings. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Um, you know, he. It did seem like when he lost, uh, what was the co-CEO Brett Taylor? Like that was a heavy loss for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of those, like when they talk about losing the Slack co-founder, you know, that's the type of thing where after an acquisition, like buying Slack, right? You normally have a typical off-road, right, or off-ramp. All right. Well, our next most popular story: John Deere finally grants farmers the right to repair. For some time now, many farmers and John Deere customers have complained about the company's repair policies. These policies require John Deere equipment to be repaired in John Deere facilities using John Deere parts. But now it appears Deere is willing to buck the system. But it didn't come easy. The American Farm Bureau Federation has reached an agreement with John Deere that gives farmers and ranchers the right to repair their own equipment. Part of the reason we saw some of this movement is that farmers are having trouble, quote, accessing tools and resources. John Deere has had other external forces, including, quote, the right to repair bill that was introduced in the Senate in 2022. Some skeptics remain and say that the deal still lacks teeth and could be difficult to enforce while staving off legislation. Anna, is this John Deere just getting... uh, just steering clear of this right to repair bill, or is there actually some uh, goodwill here? Uh, as an outsider to this long-standing fight, I will not take a position, but I will lay out what others are saying about this. Okay. Um, to me, the most interesting part about this was actually how the advocates in this field were were just kind of flat out not buying this, mm-hmm. being genuine. Um, so NPR covered this before we did. Uh, they quoted Walter... Schweitzer, who's president of the Montana Farmers Union, and he expressed concern about enforcement and also pointed to a provision that allows the company to pull out of the memorandum of understanding, which is what this is. Right. Um, if any right to repair legislation is enacted, any right to repair oh, legislation. Wow. So his question then was, if John Deere really wants this, then why is it afraid of right to repair legislation? Um. Because the argument, I think, is that the timing of this is designed to actually slow the momentum of that right to repair legislation effort that's been gaining steam both at the federal level and um, kind of this patchwork of state uh, proposals of how to manage this this uh, issue. So that's one thing. Uh, under the agreement, John Deere can also protect its trade secrets and bar users from overriding safety features in its equipment which might actually be, in my opinion, at the heart of these complaints because, the, you know, I, to me it sounds like this language provides some cover for John Deere to then say, sorry, the scenario requires a technician because of safety or trade secrets. I mean, that's a pretty big umbrella that you could probably hide behind yeah. mm-hmm. fairly easily. Perhaps that's why the industry is a bit skeptical about whether or not this is going to work or if this is still going to provide like a, a significant number of barriers for them to achieve what they're trying to do in terms of fixing this equipment. Um, you know, because to Schweitzer's point about enforcement, legislation would offer that um, a memorandum of understanding, which is seemingly very open to interpretation, mm-hmm. still leaves a ton of control in the hands of John Deere, I think, in this case. And so you can see how some of the industry is a little bit nervous about how this is actually going to play out, whether it's going to be truly beneficial to them or if they're just sort of an observer in this chess game that John Deere is playing with the government 
which it kind of looks like it could be, but Jeff, how, how do you know anyone's intentions? I true. I, I suppose uh, by nature, Jeff is a memorandum of understanding essentially PR. Well, David <laughs> depends on, are you the glass half full or half empty type of guy? It all depends on the day. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, it's a minute. You know, it, there's interesting here, and there's there's some parallels. Anna and I were just actually talking about this. We both covered the automotive aftermarket a while ago. Mm-hmm. And early 2000s, the automotive aftermarket, the service end of it was really, they have the same thing. They were looking for the Right to Repair Act to be passed. They had everything drafted. They had, every, they had advocates for it um, in Congress. And at that time, right when it was really gaining steam, they came out with the National Automotive Service Task Force, which was basically a go-between between all of the aftermarket folks, um, the, basically the people who repair vehicles who are not aligned with a dealership or an OEM, and all the OEs. Mm-hmm. So Toyota, General Motors, Ford, all that. And basically, NHT, NHTSF was going to work in NASTF <laughs> was going to be the go-between, getting that information, providing it on their website so that the aftermarket would know where to get all the tools, equipment, whatever they needed, all the parts to do the same work that the dealerships could do. So it was a level playing field. Right. Well, David, it's 20 years later. They're still trying to pass this Right to Repair Act because there's still gaps okay. in that information that's coming across. Okay. There's still not a, it's still not a level playing field in terms of repairing vehicles and getting all that necessary information. Similar situation here. Mm-hmm. Is John Deere trying to play nice? Yes, but they're also trying to control the situation. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. absolutely no doubt. And on one hand, you can appreciate where they're coming from, kind of playing both sides here. But John Deere has invented, has invested so much time and energy into the technologies that have become their products. You can appreciate why they also want to have some of those service dollars that are coming in to help them continue to reinvest in taking care of those products and technologies that they have created. Mm-hmm. You can appreciate that. And as these vehicles are made better, they're lasting longer, you're not going to sell as many because you're going to have them repairable. Yeah. Okay. That's part of the deal here, too. So you can appreciate why, whether it's Ford or John Deere, why they want to hold on to those service and repair dollars and activities. You can appreciate that. Plus, it's relationship building for future sales down the road. At the same time, they're a victim of their own success. Because just as vehicles have become, for lack of a better term, a commodity-type item, so have tractors in the agricultural sector. Mm -hmm. So in order to offer the consumer a level playing field, I think they do have to be more open. But the only way we're going to get there is probably through some sort of regulation. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to happen quickly because these are big companies. If it's not when it, it's not just John Deere, we're going to be yeah. talking about CNH in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a number of other pig folks out there. Caterpillar is going to be involved in this. They don't want this either because again, they want to control that information, what's going out there, so that they don't risk putting any of their IP yeah. out there at risk. They don't want to become too transparent. And again, they have a right in some respects to preserve those dollars that are coming in for service and repairs. Yeah, I understand the need to protect your IP. But I think it all boils down to just that almost like that regular monthly income that comes from an almost subscription type service where they need X amount of dollars budgeted for these repairs in order to make, you know, costs for, in order to pay for, you know, an acceptable cost as to what the machine they can sell it for. So basically to break even, they can sell it for less because they know that the steady income is coming in and they can't, lo- they can't lose that. Um, potentially. I mean, <clears throat> I, I get that, but, but I mean, they're also investing in the margins on a lot of this big equipment is, is not great either, yeah. especially at the point of sale. 
Whereas for the service, margins are great. Yeah. The other thing that I think they need to need to at least sort of, I don't know, pre, or one of the things that I was thinking in terms of a, a middle ground is put a time frame on it. And that's one of the oh, things yeah. that was discussed in the automotive sector as well. Well, maybe give the always the first whatever it is. Five like five years, years yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, where they can they can hold on to that model year information before they release it to the general public or the general aftermarket. Potentially something similar here could be mm-hmm. a solution. But I think you're going to continue to see these right-to-repair acts or legislation or needs go beyond just automotive, beyond just OE stuff. I mean, we've seen it already in consumer electronics. It's going into other places as well. It's going to continue to be an issue as consumers want more information, more transparency, because it's so much easier to obtain. Do you think it's a bigger deal for farmers because margins are so much slimmer for farmers? Whereas I think of automotive, whereas I don't necessarily care about the right to repair because I don't trust myself enough to even open the hood, let alone. So, you know, I bring it to the Toyota dealership to have it fixed. Whereas I feel like a farmer has a much more intimate connection with that equipment and might be a little bit more capable of repairing it. I don't think it's even the farmers wanting to do a lot of it themselves. Okay. But also being able to just have choices in oh, terms okay. of where they can mm-hmm. take it. If they want, I don't want to go to a John Deere dealership because you know what? That's 40 miles away. This independent guy down the way here, he can help me out if he can get access to the information. He's willing to make the investments in the tools, the software, whatever else but he can only make that investment if John Deere puts it out there. Yeah, right. yeah, and a lot of the farmers were, had expressed concerns about having to wait, um, okay. having to wait yeah. for Deere technicians and what that means for their business when you have a $500,000 brick in your field and you can't yeah. do anything. Right. That's the other thing. This equipment is so expensive. Mm-hmm. It's such a big, um, in proportion, such a big investment to what their operation is. So the American Farm Bureau Federation president, Zippy Duval said, quote, a piece of equipment is a major investment. Farmers must have the freedom to choose where equipment is repaired or to repair it themselves to help control costs. Just reiterating what you said before. The memorandum of understanding sets parameters and creates a mechanism to address farmers concerns. I'm just hoping it's more than like a suggestion box. Just like. No, no, no. Uh, leave your concerns in this Google Doc that will never be checked. Well, I know because that that bureau is also giving something up as well. They've basically said to their um, regional groups and stuff, we're, we're going to not push for this legislation anymore. And, and it's just so funny because that's the exact thing that was going on with, mm-hmm. with the task force, the automotive task force. It's basically all these folks were saying, and there's even industry groups who are getting on board with it saying, we don't need the legislation. Stop pushing it. Stop dealing with this. We've got this agreement in place. Again, it's 20 years later and right. there still isn't enough information out there. Well, I think we should trust him because John Deere says it's committed to engaging with farmers and dealers to resolve issues when they arise and agrees to meet with the AFBF at least twice per year to evaluate progress. I'm sure they're going to stick to that commitment. Seems likely. All right. Our next most popular story this week, 666 workers laid off after construction contract falls apart. Wanzik Construction laid off 666 contract workers who were building a solar powered rail mill in Pueblo, Colorado. Wanzek was building the mill for mining company Evraz. Wanzek parent company, Mass Tech Industrial, said the company will close all operations permanently and terminate all employees as of January 3rd. But the project is only 48% done. 
The project and the company have had some problems. Mastech and Wanzek were recently hit with a $302 million lawsuit that alleges negligence and breaches of contract. For example, Wanzek is accused of not properly staffing the project and not training subcontractors, which contributed to delays and damages worth north of $130 million. Wanzek countersued and denied many of the allegations. However, the company does accept partial blame for staffing issues with project managers. According to the counter lawsuit, the project would now cost more than $600 million and not be completed until early 2024. Evraz is now looking for a new contractor with hopes of keeping the project alive and many of the project's current subcontractors on board. Anna, this entire story and project had so many problems. I was surprised they even made it to 48% done. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> like, And my first thought when I saw this was, well, sometimes this is what you get when you put out an RFP and go with the lowest cost provider. But... I don't think that's what happened here. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to just want to sneak that one in. I well, because if you look at Maztec, they are a multinational company. They're publicly traded. They do billions of dollars of you know business per year on these contracts. Um, they're they're very active in many business segments, including logistics, alternative energy stuff that's really making a lot of money right now. Infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at how this business unit Wanzek ran this project, it looks like a clown show. And it's so crazy to think that, you know, it's not like some fly-by-night organization that is behind this. Mm -hmm. Clown show in that there was an entire car of clowns. Mm -hmm. They all got out did disparate items yeah. or disparate things that they all failed at. and the, But it was like kind of an empty clown car. It wasn't even that many clowns in it. <laughs> Fair. Because it wasn't staffed correctly. It wasn't staffed correctly. <laughs> um, allegedly. Uh, and I realized that they filed a counterclaim disputing a lot of this. But, um, you know, why did it happen then that they couldn't complete the project? That's the big question. I think it, that, you know, it, it doesn't exactly scream like we're blameless when they run um, cut and run on like a massive project like this one. It doesn't make sense. So yeah, I think there's um, some concerns reflected here in what we've seen a lot of businesses experience. In my opinion, you've seen some companies, um, of course, not all, but get dollar signs in their eyes with this glut of demand in areas like construction and bite off more than they can chew. And I know that there are a lot of business out there that have had to make some changes to their culture, kind of grew their business with a mantra of say yes, and we'll figure it out later. Right. Um, and maybe the current business conditions just don't allow for that. Um, you know, we've really never been in a place where workers are just flat out not available. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, in, in my lifetime, True. I can't, you know, n- well, not being able to get contractors just for whatever price you could, you know, at least get somebody. But Workers and the volatility in terms of material costs. Exactly. And, you know, the lack of people, the lack of training also, I think, could be a result of this company maybe being overambitious about their ability to overcome these resource issues. Um, that they have maybe done in the past, mm-hmm. um, not quite paying enough attention or paying enough respect to that fact that this environment is just certainly unprecedented. To me, it seemed like it was an issue of they just flat out made a mistake. Like yeah. They couldn't do the job with what they had available. Well, and maybe this is how they've done it 99 times out of every 100 projects and, it, and it's worked. You right. Know? Yeah. But uh, for whatever reason, this particular area, this particular project, they couldn't staff and... 
you know, it became a big issue for the company. Well, and you can't blame a company for it's not in so many business people's DNA to think we would ever have to turn down a contract or turn down money. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I know in our business, too, it's just like we would let's see if we can figure out. How yeah. To make say this yes. Figure it out. Say yes. Figure it out. Yeah. And I think that there are certain industries right now and, you know, certain types of uh, business projects where it's just not that doesn't work right now. Jeff, I really feel for the com- the community in particular, which is left in limbo. And while I hope this still comes to fruition, do you think that is Evraz being too optimistic, thinking that they can continue the project, keeping the same con- subcontractors on board, and basically just finding a new contractor? No, I think I think it's still a viable project. I think it's interesting. Did you read the lawsuits? <laughs> Reading the verbiage within this, it's so. It just seems so cut and dry. Yeah. You know, it's so obvious when the, the plaintiff brings this argument against it, how just nefarious the the uh, the, the other Defendant, party yeah. was and, and how they just – they can't even believe how they could just not communicate. It was so simple, so mm-hmm. straightforward. Um, so taking that, you know, with a grain of salt, it does look like there was just a lot of communication issues more than just resource issues. Obviously, that was a concern managing the number of different subcontractors and, and all of that. But again, it really felt like Everaz really just, they weren't getting the data they needed from the contractor as far as how things were progressing, who was doing what in a more organized fashion. Maybe that is something that, um, um, what's the name of Wem? Oh, Wanzek. Wanzek just wasn't familiar. Maybe it was that dynamic that was somehow different for him. Mm-hmm. Hard to imagine with the number of other projects they've done. If you look at their website, like Anna was alluding to, They've done a ton of this type of stuff yeah. before, so mm-hmm. it's kind of a head-scratcher. What's also interesting here, and I think one of the reasons Everaz is definitely going to follow through on this project, is this was a huge investment in this mill mm. within this town of Pueblo. And, I mean, they they received some pretty significant incentives to go forward with this. They've got a $15 million uh, grant from the city. They've got a half-cent sales tax fund that's there for economic development to help pay for this. And there's a bunch of other incentives that are in place as well. Provided Everaz keeps about a thousand employees on on the payroll, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of incentive for Everaz to go forward with this. Um, I think they'll continue to find a new contractor. The way it ended so abruptly, the way Everaz just basically fired them and said, "This isn't working. We're suing you for breach of contract." Interesting approach, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know if there's going to be people lining <laughs> up to to grab on and, and finish this job. Yeah, but it does seem like they've got incentives anyway to follow through and get it done. Well, and maybe more so than Evraz is the community because they already have so much invested. Um, I will say on the safety side, though, there are some weird things that happened throughout the course of this project. Um, When Wanzek didn't comply with the contract's programs and protocols, like one particular instance where crews uncovered an active water line that shut down the project for a week. In another safety violation, a hydraulic crane barely missed a live 6,700 volt power line. Damn. And the strike of that water cooling line resulted in the immediate shutdown of both the coil, uh, coil and steel mills, which led to a 24 hour loss of production in both mills. And now Palmer NA, which is the, um, parent company or part of Everaz, I think it's all Everaz Palmer, um, argues that this negligence led to an unacceptable risk for furnace operators at the mill endangering workers' lives. And there were so many more examples of these safety problems that maybe 
you know, at some point more than the communication, they were just like, Hey, it's just not safe to have them in charge anymore. Mm -hmm. True. Um, because it seemed like there were other businesses operating at this site. And I mean, when you're talking about a 24 hour loss of production at two mills, that could be devastating. No. All right. Our next most popular story this week, CNH workers reject quote, last best and final offer. Last Saturday, more than 1,000 CNH industrial workers on strike in Iowa and Wisconsin rejected the company's last, best, and final offer. Workers will continue the no more than eight-month work stoppage at the construction and agricultural equipment maker. They're continuing the now more than eight-month work stoppage at the construction, agricultural, and equipment maker. There it is. The United Auto Workers Union will meet to discuss next steps to take with the company. This is the first vote on an offer since the workers walked off the job. Workers at plants in Burlington, Iowa and Racine, Wisconsin, previously rejected at at the start of the strike a three-year deal that included 18.5% raises because of concerns that the proposed raises wouldn't cover soaring inflation and health insurance costs. The UAW has not discussed what CNH has offered since the strike began in May. Anna, I have to feel like if they were not happy eight months ago that uh, the deal was not going to cover soaring inflation and health insurance costs, that that's changed quite a bit in the last eight months. And so I wonder if they're anywhere near the two, uh, the two sides were anywhere close to each other. Yeah, um, we do know a little bit about that based on some of the follow-up coverage that I've seen. Um, I think we know exactly why this was a popular story. I think that 18.5% number mm-hmm. was probably really got some people's attention when you see that they were offered that as a raise in the initial round of, of discussions, and this was at the beginning of this eight months. I think people seeing that maybe had some questions about what's going on here. I know I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, to add more context, C- CNH had had said that the most recent rejected contract offer contained a four-year deal with wage increases of now 25 to 38%. My goodness. And while I usually take the side of workers and, and would encourage them to hustle in whatever way they can to get the best deal possible that they can, I think this is hard for observers to understand A bit of that I blame on the UAW. The UAW says that the increase isn't enough to cover inflation. They've been talking about this inflation thing a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, They say it doesn't include enough vacation days and and it doesn't offer better health care coverage. It sounds like this health care issue, which is not, I think, being widely reported, is being a huge uh, part of this as a sticking point. Mm -hmm. Uh, The workers say that their premiums are getting so high that that alone would eat up so much of this pay increase that they're sl- they would be slated to receive. Um, I blame the UW a bit for not making that more clear um, mm. in the reports because you're just really not seeing that part of it. Um, you're just no. seeing these numbers, right? These and wage increases. And that's incredibly high. And they're incredibly high, right? Yeah. Um, you know, 18.5%, I think to anyone who's looking at yeah. that in a vacuum, like that seems like a very generous increase. Yeah. Um. You know, I think the union and the workers are also pointing to CNH's 20% increase in profit last year. I do think, though, that there is a point where you have to consider that not every year allows for that. Mm -hmm. I know that companies are looking at maybe going into a potential downturn with a potential recession on the way. That does not absolve them from any responsibility to their employees. However, uh, these pay raises are, you know, I think 
ideally permanent. So you just have to keep in mind that maybe not every year is going to be as profitable as this year was. Mm -hmm. It Um, is kind of interesting that the company who is seeing record profits as a result of inflation that people are paying on their products is not willing to pay the same inflation for wages for their workers. But but 38% doesn't cover that, you don't think? No, no, no. Theirs were only marked up 22% or something like that. And they're, uh, but yeah, no, I think 38% will cover it. So secondly, I have concerns that these workers are taking this to the point of no return. Mm-hmm. Um, this strike has gone on much, much longer than the average worker strike, which is two months, by the way. Uh, for context, Deer's worker strike, they're in the same industry, was five weeks. Um, CNH has already put temporary workers in place to keep factories running. The longer they stay, the more valuable those workers become. Oh, yeah. Um, and now CNH has given the workers, the striking workers, I should say, a little bit of an out. They say that while this is their last offer, that they're encouraging the union um, and the workers to reconsider and to put it to another vote. And there is some pressure building. One, the latest vote was quite close to answer your question. It was 45 percent for and 55 percent against. So mm. it's getting there. Um, which means hundreds of workers uh, want this to be over, I think. Yeah. Um, two, the longer the strike lasts, the more workers are going to feel that strain of $400 a week strike pay, which for eight months is a very, very long time. That's meant to be a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. They should not be living their lives for eight months on that amount of money. Nobody is. That's not working for a lot of people, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then number three, you know, spring is ag equipment season. So right now... Um, the busiest time for CNH is is now and right around the corner. So I just don't see this lasting much longer. I think between the two sides, they have to either, you know, I mean, th- th- if this is the last offer, then they need to revote and pass it. Otherwise, I'm worried that their jobs are are gone. I think that we're to the point where we're maybe pushing too far on this. No, I agree. Something has got to give. Jeff, do you think it might be that some workers, I mean, if we're talking about a 45 to 55% split, you know, maybe that 45%, you know, leaves the union and just goes to work for CNH on their own. What's even more awkward than that is the fact that this actually passed at the Iowa location. Okay. It passed. At the, it was, so I think there's, there's, I think the split is like 400 in Iowa, 700 in Burlington or the, Milwaukee. Um, Racine. Racine. Um, so yeah, if it would have just been Iowa, it would have gone through. There's so many factors here working against these workers. First of all, you just saw a company have a quarterly improvement in their profits by 22% using replacement workers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That does not help your cause. Neither does the fact that they came forward with at a minimum 18.5% and you said no thanks. Mm-hmm. The other thing from just from my public perception as well is you're seeing consumer priced goods stabilize. I'm not going to say it's great. But when you're looking at the things you buy every day, the prices, whatever they've come up to, they're staying there. Gas prices are down a little bit. So a lot of these factors related to inflation and cost of living, that argument isn't going to hold as much water as it would have eight months ago. Mm. Same thing when you look at healthcare costs. Yes, they're ridiculous. They're expensive. That's a lot. But that's always going to be a sticking point whenever you get into these types of negotiations. And again, 20%, I... Man, it seems like there is some concessions there. So when you put all these factors together, I just think these striking workers are in a really tough spot. And to Anna's point, coming up on your busy season, if they get through the spring without this strike being settled, mm-hmm. these jobs are not going to be there. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a scary proposition for a lot of people in the Midwest. Um, you had mentioned the most uh, the most recent 
earnings reports. That's where I got that 22%. I was wrong. I don't know what the markup's been on their equipment. Uh, I, I, yeah. uh, I grabbed the wrong stat. But um, <clears throat> do you think, could they split that at all where uh, Iowa holds their own vote and Wisconsin holds their own vote? Is that doable? I, mean, I don't think so. If they're in the same branch or their same union and that's who's negotiating everything, no. I think they're all together. I mean, that's the solidarity of the union. Was also kind of interesting. Did you read some of the quotes from the union leader who basically, when he rolled everything out, he said he was really surprised that there wasn't more of a reaction? Yeah. People were just like, no, they're not going to do this. There wasn't a lot of questions. There wasn't a lot of dialogue mm-hmm. oh, back it's and just, forth. Just a straight no. Somebody is in these workers' ears in Racine. Yeah. Like somebody is telling them something that has really got them holding on to this, whether it is the healthcare situation, maybe it is a little bit older workforce at that facility or, or something else, but there is something that they're just really holding on to. Well, it's an entirely separate podcast, but healthcare costs have just become obnoxious for everybody. And I understand if that is a sticking point. And I do think that that maybe more so than inflation could be a stronger issue for them to argue. I did read something in there like a 6400 deductible or something like $6,400 deductible. That is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you can understand the frustration there. But again, when you look at John Deere workers coming back for a 10% increase, and this mm-hmm. is almost double. Well, I don't know. almost double. I mean, at almost the, at the outset. Yeah. Well, like at the, at the minimum, I'm saying yeah. there are these, I think these are, these are probably more managerial spots that they're talking about these larger increases. I'm going to guess. I don't think these are yeah. stuff on the plant floor, but I don't know. Oh my goodness, 38%. All right. Our most popular story this week is a feel-good story for now. 86-year-old man nearly done building 400-mile-per-hour car. Jim Byerly is an 86-year-old Michigan man who has been working on a 27-foot-long, 4,000-pound streamlined car since 1996. Byerly believes his car will be ready by August to top 400 miles per hour on the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah. The octogenarian has spent $250,000 of his own money on building his streamliner, and he won't even be the one to drive it. Byerly's neighbor, Eric Baer, a fellow automotive enthusiast, is going to be the man behind the wheel. In the, if the streamliner tops 400 miles per hour, it will beat the current record of 348 miles per hour set in 2010. Anna, your thoughts on this man's 30 plus year effort to set a land speed record. It's a fun story. Jeff and I were talking before the podcast about how there's not really a great like <laughs> counterpoint to this. Like, what do we, I don't know. Yeah, like, sometimes you just shouldn't have a dream. I hope he fails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he started this in 1996, making him 59 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they say that retirement isn't for everyone and that some people don't take to it well. But I guess, like, all you need is $250,000 um, tinkering skills because he's been working on the car since he was a teenager, yeah, right? patience. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got a, plenty of ways to occupy your time here. So... Anyway, I, I don't know. If he can top that record, I would be all for it. I think it's awesome. That's incredible uh, that he's doing this. Um, I thought it might be fun to pull out some world records that were established by elderly people because right. the story is a great reminder that we can and should continue to pursue our passions. Um, so when those retirement years are upon us, we can approach them with vigor and maybe even achieve a few lofty goals. So 
Now, granted, many of these are records purely for being the oldest person to do something. <laughs> but but this first one is not. Okay. In, in, in 2020, 68-year-old George Hood broke the record for the longest plank at eight hours. Oh, my God. <gasps> Doesn't oh, that make man. you want to die? Like, I just, my collarbone is like, yeah. breaks just thinking about I was about just it. complaining about playing basketball for an hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. Eight-hour plank. Eight minutes might be a struggle 68 for years old. Yeah. Um, all right, so this is another good one. Irene O'Shea became the world's oldest skydiver at 102 years of age. Get after it. Irene. <laughs> okay, and then um, Jack Reynolds at age 107 was the oldest person to appear on a soap opera. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I, so, yeah, I don't know. I love this stuff. Like, keep at it, Jim. Like, you're an inspiration to all of us. I hope that you have... Um, have the ability to achieve this dream and I hope that someday I have even like a smidgen of you know the initiative that you have in your 80s so that's awesome I guess the only counterpoint would be the safety issue is just make sure you're safe because it makes me think of I think his name was Mad Mike who made his own rocket yeah that, yeah uh, but he's and, he's not going to drive it right the no old, he's well man. that was the other point is so because he's not going to drive it is he even going to set the record or will the record <laughs> actually go to Eric Bear oh good question I don't know so oldest person to design a very fast car driven by someone else could be a record. Right? It could be. Um, Jeff, one thing I liked about Jim is that he said he only has one item on his bucket list and this is it. No, that's awesome. I mean, you know, to Anna's point, I was going to talk about that too. Some folks retire and they just don't know what to do. Yeah. It's awesome. And if you see the guy in the report, like he's looking good for 86. Oh man. yeah. He's looking spry and ready to yeah. roll. Um, Got some of that old man strength going on. He'd be the guy in the bar you think you're getting away with something. Oh, yeah. He puts you in your place. That you'd uh, you'd arm wrestle at like midnight, and you're just like, yeah, he knocked me off my stool. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. No, it's cool. I think the other thing that was interesting here is just the, the Bonneville Salt Flats out in Utah. I mean, there's been such a connection to that location with just engineering. I mean, obviously primarily automotive, but it's been cool some of the things that have been going on there. There's all sorts of different records mm -hmm. for, for going out there and setting speeds. And I'm not, we didn't get enough technical details on the vehicle to see which one this fits in. Yeah. So, I mean, I know there's going to be some people saying that doesn't sound like a land speed record. Well, there's lots of different classifications. Yeah. But it is kind of cool when you look back at the history of everything that's been going on there. There's been four different people that have gone over 600 miles per what? hour out there. Uh, one guy has gone over 700 miles per hour. Goodness. He's done it twice. My goodness. Um, been some other kind of cool things from an engineering perspective. In, in 1963, um, Dick Beath set a record. He went 130 miles an hour um, using a Who? vehicle. Dick Beath. Oh, okay. Sorry. You know? Long no, 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 no. It's, it sounded familiar. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Richard Beath. My, yes. No. No. Anyway, he um, he set a record with a vehicle that was fashioned from a w, uh, World War II aircraft belly tank. So interesting good for him you know been some other cool stuff that's going on the world's fastest diesel in 2006 went 350 miles an hour uh, more recently we've seen the fastest electric vehicle um, the venturi buckeye bullet three is a bunch of college kids from ohio state went over 340 miles per hour Man. and actually as recently as 2018 we saw the kawasaki ninja set a record for the fastest street legal production motorcycle at just under 210 miles per hour. Jeez. On a crotch rocket. So huh? on a crotch rocket <sighs> across basically Brave. concrete. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so, I can't even imagine what that, that would be incredible. Well, the, I mean, it's, it's interesting too, is the Salt Lake, the flats, the Salt Flats are just like an amazing geographical feature to see. Mm -hmm. People go out there just to take it in. And one of the, one of the things I was reading up on is that they're very conscious of don't leave anything behind. 
oh. <laughs> preserve the environment. Yeah. And then twice a year, you've got these speed weeks out there where they're doing all this crazy automotive testing and, and engineering. And apparently they're doing a pretty good job of preserving the environment because everything's still, still um, where it's supposed to be. What I liked is that he initially grew his passion for cars reading Hot Rod magazine. Yeah. And it blew his mind when he finally, with this project, was featured in Hot Rod magazine. Oh, that's awesome. That was a really cool part. Um, the neighbor I found interesting, he's actually he's quite uh, a race car driver. He's been in several drag races, and he's been doing it since the 90s. Another kind of sweet part of this is that um, he gained a little extra motivation in 2020 when Byerly's wife of 63 years died. Um, and he said the only thing that drives him every day is that she would always tell him, I just want this to do what you want it to do. And that's what drives him every day. I think Aww. that's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to, in case you missed it, the stories that maybe weren't as popular on the websites, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward, we have another word from our longtime sponsor, Oil Eater. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. And we're back with In Case You Missed It. The stories, not so popular, but still pretty important. Anna, what is your In Case You Missed It this week? Sure. Um, so I selected a story titled, More Than 60% of Manufacturing Leaders Think a Recession Will Happen This Year. And I know this sounds like a real downer. <laughs> But I don't know if it is as bad as it There sounds. were some positive points to this downer. There were some many positive points, actually. Uh, so um, NAM, which is the National Association of Manufacturers, something like that, mm -hmm. um, released its latest survey results on its Q4 outlook and revealed that 62.4% of manufacturing leaders believe the U.S. economy will slide into a recession this year if we haven't already. Um, staffing remains a primary concern. 75%-ish of leaders um, found that keeping quality employees uh, and finding them will be a top problem in 2023, with 65% also noting supply chain challenges and 60% increased material costs. So despite these worries, NAM says that more than 65% of manufacturing leaders plan to spend capital on new equipment and technology, 64% on upskilling and training, 55% on hiring, and 52% on R&D. Nearly 69% of manufacturing leaders have a positive outlook for their company. Mm -hmm. The historical average is 75%. But I think the aforementioned points suggest that any type of recession we might encounter could be vastly different from what we've seen before. And I know people are kind of saying that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I find it interesting when businesses talk about the potential for a recession if it's not already here, because mm -hmm. if it's already here and we don't know about it, then what kind of recession is it? Like we, we, <laughs> we should know, right? Yeah. Um, 
And I just I get the feeling from this data that manufacturers are hearing the warning signs just like everyone else. They're seeing the aggressiveness from the Fed, the lumpiness of the stock market. They're seeing the news reports and they almost feel like it's inevitable. And yet when they look at their own businesses, they don't see a scenario that's actually mandating that they slow or stop investing in equipment, people, R&D and the like. Mm -hmm. Um, So my opinion on this data is that it's a bit nuanced um, and that if we can get through this year without talking ourselves into a recession collectively, <laughs> then, you know, that's going to be a big win. But if we don't, I think many individual businesses are showing us from their answers here that they're in a position of relative strength, honestly. Right. Um, and maybe that's come from some of the right sizing and other uh, related lessons of the pandemic. But I would say that despite this dramatic headline, I don't feel like we need to be losing sleep over the health of the manufacturing sector just yet, because it feels like... Um, there's still a lot of positivity there. I know that, you know, we all worked in this industry during the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And when that was going on, people were really, really tightening up. They were really scaling back. There was a lot of layoffs. There was a lot of crazy stuff happening. Um, and I don't think manufacturers are really like, you know, they don't seem nervous really about this. You know, I think people are going into it thinking like we're going to continue with the status quo because we can right now. Yeah. So I don't think it's so um, worrying to me. I don't know if you guys agree. Well, do you think part of it is that because after going through 2008, after going through the pandemic, that, as you said, all this right-sizing, they're just in a better position to uh, sort of survive? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're in a recession, I mean, I don't know, maybe if uh, in five years we look back and we're like, wow, we're doing like so good now. That was definitely a recession. (laughs) Nobody knew. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with that. I do think that, um, yeah, that there's been some right sizing. I think there's still been some lingering impacts of the Great Recession on how businesses operate. I think people learned a lot during mm -hmm. that because it was so disruptive. And then, like you said, the pandemic sort of. I don't know, reminded us of what we needed to do to kind of scale back and, and make our businesses a little bit more fit, a little bit more healthy and make the right choices. And so I don't know. Well, and that was another thing that drew me to this story was that uh, any, uh, uh, the majority of businesses thought that a recession was coming, but all the decisions that they were still making definitely made you think twice about like, okay, it's not going to be that bad. And I was actually interested on the cross section of people that they talked to, it was kind of an even split, mostly uh, medium sized manufacturers, about mm-hmm. 44%, then large manufacturers, about 35%, and then small manufacturers were the rest of that. So it was a good cross section of the industry. And they were showing, I mean, it seemed to me, Jeff, that most of this came down to raw material prices and the instability around there as to whether or not uh, it might be a recession. That's every year, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's just an ongoing yeah. concern. That's, it's, it's, it's amplified because of the supply chain concerns. It's amplified because of the logistics problems that we run into. But again, I would go back. I would agree 100% with what you guys were saying about people learning so much from the, from the recession in 2008, 2009. Now, part of that was, too, I have never seen a collective group, industry, whatever you want to say, more te- petrified of one individual. Yeah. Manufacturers were terrified of Barack Obama. When mm-hmm. he was elected, there was just so many concerns about what was going to happen with healthcare costs, what was going to happen with any no- taxes, all that kind of stuff, and they stopped spending. Mm-hmm. They stopped. They cut back, like Anna alluded to, and they realized they lost pace. Mm-hmm. 2010, 11, 12, once they realized, what are we doing here? we got to spend money and catch up. They did it. They caught up. Same thing happened during the COVID lockdown. People still continued to invest, maybe out of necessity a little bit more than anything else, 
but in automation and other technologies. They knew they had to to stay competitive. Same dynamic here. All of these cost pressures are always going to be there. I think manufacturers, regardless of size, have become more astute in understanding how to navigate these types of, of situations. Mm-hmm. They're getting, they're planning out further, whether it's shifting from a just-in-time manufacturing model to um, a little bit more longer term, understanding, hey, I do need to keep a little bit more inventory on the shelves. And, and just understanding, too, with it being a global economy and so many different factors coming into play, you just have to be ready for almost anything. So I think once you've gone through the stuff we've gone through, with 2020 and 2021, a lot of these things have to be looked at as this is just the cost of doing business. This is the world we live in. Manufacturing's always been resilient just by nature as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I think some of the positive elements that come out of this, I wish we could translate this to more of the consumer economy as well and yeah. helping them to understand you don't need to panic. We've been here before. Mm-hmm. This stuff has always been there. There's spikes. There's ebbs and flows to it. But one of the benefits of being in a capitalist economy is you've got a hundred million consumers out there that are going to help dictate how this, how quickly this can be corrected and how it's going to be impacted. <clears throat> right. The other thing, you guys can please help me. Why is it so important to put a label on stuff? Why does it need to be called a recession? Why do, why do we need to, why does it have to be called that? Why can't we just say, you know what? It was down. Now it's up. Now it's getting better. No, technically this is a recession. No, technically we're off. We're up well, by one tenth of a point, so it's it's not a recession. Yeah, like you have Who to be cares? you have to be told that it is a recession in order for it to be impactful to you. That's what I don't get. Like, but so it, it may already be here. No, I, isn't that part of the deal though? That the Fed has kind of changed the goalposts in in terms of what a recession is, because we were technically kind of in a recession, and then they kind of moved it, so we weren't in a recession. Um, That's okay. No, I mean I get it. It's it's yeah. completely arbitrary. Um, but I mean, maybe it's after we reach certain economic uh, a certain economic threshold. I don't know. Well, I, don't I don't want know. to be super technical here, but I think it's kind of dumb. Okay. <laughs> All right. Keyword. He's anti-jobs and anti-recession. I don't think you're going to get many people upset over being like anti-recession. Anti-recession. Tech jobs. Yeah. But but yeah, to your point, I mean, if it's a recession but no one treats it that way, then what is it? It's like the tree in the forest. It's it a downturn. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know. Um one other thing that I found interesting, well actually there are a couple of other things. Uh one was that um manufacturers definitely are expecting rising health insurance costs mm-hmm. to continue. But that was slightly down in September, 7.7% thought that they were going to increase. That's down to like, or no, they thought they were going to go up 7.7% and that's down to 7.3. So some positivity there. Uh, the other was that more manufacturing leaders, uh, a majority, only 53%, uh, said that they've considered using high-skilled um, immigrants to fill or to help with the ongoing labor crisis. And there was an interesting breakdown in terms of people being interested in H-1B visas, people Mm. saying that they would even uh, be interested in lesser skilled immigrant visas, like uh, non-agricultural H-2Bs. And uh, even 30% of people said that they would consider refugees and other special immigrant visa holders just as a result of this ongoing labor crisis and how they're going to try and fix it. Um, so I thought that was mm-hmm. something that maybe manufacturers were looking to non-traditional um, yeah. places. Definitely. All right. Who's got the next in case you missed it? Jeff, what do you got this week? Special thanks to Ben Munson for, <laughs> for this story. Yeah. A tractor prototype that runs on cow manure. Yes, mm. perfect. The types of stories that I love, as you guys know by now, is anything dealing with sort of new weaponry for the military and anything that is 
agricultural technology. I, I love these stories, and this one makes a ton of sense. And there's more technical details within the article. I'll, I'll let, leave you to that. But basically, the, the thought here is runs on poop. Mm. You know, animals poop on the farm. You collect it. You put it into a tank or some sort of slurry pond. From there, you have other processing equipment on the farm that you feed this stuff into. There's special applications, special um, um, add-ons basically for the tractor so that it can run on this. It's mm-hmm. basically biomethane. And what I love about this, number one, is it's, I mean, you're making use, there's no, pardon the pun, there's no waste mm-hmm. <laughs> involved. Yeah. Um, it's, it's incredibly clean in terms from a missions perspective. It's really once you can get the actual processing equipment in place, and we've seen other places do this. There's a number of other farms that do this. They usually use it for some other process like making cheese, making um, other dairy products, things like that, bread, bakery, mm. whatever the case is. But to be able to turn it around and use it on something as vital as a tractor to your farming operation is incredible. Yeah. The other thing I like about this, too, is not only does it bring new technology to agriculture, which desperately needs it, deserves it, we all want it to happen, is it can transition the farm, which is a manufacturing facility. Mm-hmm. It always has been. It's a production plant. And this type of equipment and this type of technology and this type of mindset helps push that forward as well. Mm. Now, this is still very expensive processing equipment, and there's yeah. still a lot of technology that needs to be worked out in terms of making the um, the different temperature controls, the, the different components that are needed in retrofitting a tractor mm-hmm. to to be able to use this fuel. And they can, um, um, it's putting on about 270 horsepower, so it's not a huge tractor, yeah. but it's a it's a solid, solid field tractor that you can use to to work in the fields with. So, um, yeah, all the stuff that's involved with basically methane power and liquefied natural gas, which is what we're talking about here, it's involved. But again, it's sort of pushing agricultural um, production into an area that we need it to go to mm-hmm. and that we should really champion, mm-hmm. I think. It, uh, I think it's interesting because beyond the tractor, this could be anything that runs on the farm. You could transition eventually – you, yeah, you could transition need, as long all, as it can retrofit that motor. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of pizzerias that changed their fleet to run on oil because they have mm-hmm. crazy amounts of fryer oil, and so they run yeah. their fleet on that. Um, I was really inspired by this story. I was also inspired by the sheer amount of puns that Munson could fit into it. <laughs> He's good at that. He's very good at that. Um, Anna, what were your thoughts on this feel-good agricultural dung story? I thought it was. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Like uh, my favorite line of this story was when uh, Ben talks about uh, their estimate that when the prototype tractor is integrated within the on-farm liquid fugitive biomethane production process. Mm. Don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible for an operation's overall carbon footprint to be better than zero, he said. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Like if you can get even close to that, I, sign me up. I'm ready to start shoveling sh- Oh, I just, I got beeped. Oh, man. Tally on the board. <laughs> I got beeped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot Eric of, lot of the, drop yeah, jobs. just give you the sternest look I, ever. We just can't, we just upped it to PG-13 and oh, we're sorry for all the families a, out there. Real potty mouth over there. <laughs> I'm going to get a check mark for that. Well, uh, <laughs> while Anna's out shoveling feces, um, no, it's uh, I can't even remember where I was going to go with that. As a result <laughs> of the sheer shock, um, <clears throat> so I'll just move on. My, in case you missed it this week, uh, was about Tesla and Tesla's eyeing a huge Texas expansion. 
2023 has been rather brutal for Tesla. Despite selling a record 1.3 million vehicles last year, the company missed projections. As a result, Tesla stock has plummeted down nearly 70% since the beginning of last year. Musk even set a Guinness World Record for largest loss of a <clears throat> loss of a personal fortune in history, losing between $182 billion and $200 billion since November 2021. But that hasn't stopped Tesla from moving forward. According to a Reuters article, the company plans to expand its Gigafactory into Austin, Texas, to the tune of some $775.7 million. The company wants to build five new f- facilities in Texas, including a test lab for cells and a cathode unit. Tesla still operates a production facility in Fremont, California, as well as a Gigafactory in Nevada, and it's rumored that the carmaker will announce another potentially $1 billion Gigafactory in northern Mexico. Now, before I get into the details of this story, I remember what my original point was, and it was just that finally we can turn the tables on cow waste being demonized for climate change, and it can really be a mechanism for change. Yeah, I mean, if this thing... It's a prototype, so I don't know if we've turned the table. Exactly. I mean, no, no, we can. We, we can. haven't. It's the but thing we, that leads to yes, the thing. It's the okay. thing that can turn the table. Yes, okay. Yeah, it's, you know, it's about time because those those cows have just been beaten up for years. They have so let me just very low sure self-esteem. You're doing yeah. an article on Tesla and Elon Musk, and there was an immediate correlation to cow manure. Actually, yeah, that's a... I, you could tell. I if won't you, connect the dots. No, yeah. if you go back and listen, when I said lost instead of loss, that was when the when it came back to me. Because it was just like the largest, oh, lost. Dah! No, uh, but yes, so no correlation at all. At all. No. Um, okay. Anyway, I thought this was interesting because Tesla has been a favorite, pun- and Elon Musk in particular has been just a really popular punching bag. Um, I mean, earned. Yeah earned. Um, but I thought it was interesting that the co- the company is continuing to invest, not just in Texas, but I also found it peculiar that they might have another billion dollar gigafactory in Northern Mexico around the Monterey area. Um, the other part of this story was that, especially we've talked about it with Tesla and how they run their business um, and how that might affect suppliers a little bit as well. Uh, just before Christmas, we ran a story about a Tesla supplier repeatedly ignoring worker concerns and that leading to a host of safety issues at their plant. So I just want to talk about being aggressive, but careful in how these growing pains and demands can impact suppliers. For example, the Simwan, which manufactures doors for vehicles made at Tesla's Texas Gigafactory, it's about 20 miles away. About two weeks ago, an OSHA investigation found that Simwan, which is a subsidiary of a South Korean company, Myungshin Industries, ignored repeated concerns raised by workers and willfully exposed them to unsafe machine operations, potential falls, and a lack of PPE. OSHA found several problems at the plant. A big part of the problem was power. power. Namely, there was a ton of extension cords on the floor everywhere in every room, which just seems ridiculous beyond comprehension to me. Um, Just, I mean, there has to be somebody like an Alex with a bunch of gaff tape that's just ready and willing to tape all those things down. Just trip hazards everywhere. Trip hazards everywhere. Um, As well as lockout, takeout problems, the PPE problems we mentioned before in terms of like, crazy hot parts coming off of a conveyor and then staff working near exposed live electrical parts. So while this is seemingly great developments for Tesla in Texas, as well as the workforce in Texas, let's just make sure that everything is, and you know, it's 
a company that is known for pushing a brutal pace. Mm -hmm. Let's just try and do it a little bit safer and make sure that it's a little bit safer throughout the supply chain. Um, I don't know if you guys had a chance to check out either of these stories and uh, your thoughts on what's happening with Tesla. Jeff, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, always interesting. The As far as expanding the Texas facility and the possible talk in Mexico, not a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to see Tesla potentially not just powering their own vehicles, but offering these technologies to other OEs oh, uh, yeah. in the automotive sector. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got some pretty stiff competition. we got Panasonic right in their same neighborhood. A um, mm-hmm. bunch of other folks coming online as well. So... That part of it wasn't surprising, makes a lot of sense. But like you say, you hope we can go at the right pace. We're talking about a company who refuses to adjust their autopilot uh, mm-hmm. platform software, regardless of all of the safety issues that have been raised, the NTSB investigation that continues to be ongoing. So I would agree. <laughs> Slow her down a little bit. And also, Tesla is going to be in a situation with the cachet that that company has. It doesn't matter how loosely connected or how directly connected you are to any supplier. Now, to here, it's a very direct connection yeah. in a number of ways. You're going to be linked to all that. Yeah. So you do have an obligation, if you, for your own company's sake and well-being and, and prosperity going forward, to be in the loop and be paying attention to these things. We talked about it with um, those um, the child labor yeah, issues. Hyundai. With Hyundai, yeah. I mean, that wasn't their facility. It was a supplier, but guess what? They're connected to it too now. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely something that they need to embrace as they get bigger and more prominent. Anna, your thoughts on <clears throat> another expansion in Texas for Tesla? Yeah, I mean, I think you raised a, a, a an appropriate point around speed. You know, what kind of pressure is Tesla under right now as their stock just plummets in value and it's lost, what, 70-something percent of its value over yeah. the last year? Um and then to have that miss, uh, you know, they they really need to get production up and running and be able to hit those targets, especially with all these competitors coming into play right now. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just dealing with so many different pressures, and then on top of it, all the other business pressures that exist um, for everyone. So you're you're right in in being concerned that um, you know Elon Musk and crew uh, hits the gas on this, and then we run into some problems later because mm-hmm. they're trying to do too much at once to try to address all these issues that are facing them right now. So hopefully they make some good choices as they're trying to develop here because you can't force it. (laughs) You know, you have to like do things the right way. Otherwise it's just going to be worse in the end. Well, as they have scaled over the years, they've done so, you know, doubling in size, but as, I mean, we've mentioned it before, all relatively small jumps. Now we're starting to get into way bigger jumps and uh, just logistically, operationally, much more difficult. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, before we do our final thoughts, we have a comment from Nolan mm. who says, don't worry, Anna, the Today in Manufacturing podcast is promptly marked as not for children upon upload to YouTube. <laughs> That's good to know, Nolan. Let's start dropping F-bombs. Nolan just learned, learned a new word. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Um, it won't happen again, I don't think. <laughs> it might. Though. Oh, she's coming out hot. Uh, Anna, your final thoughts this week. Okay, so speaking of things that are for children, um, uh, my daughter's turning eight in February, and we just booked her birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, boy. Yeah, Oof. I know. So uh, I, I, what have I done? I don't know. Um, but <laughs> don't I, miss those. <laughs> succumb to the mouse. It's two hours. It's going to be an intense two hours. Um, but I wanted to put this out to the audience the listeners because i know there's like um some very intelligent brains out there and maybe um maybe like a 
I don't know who would know how to answer this question. Maybe I should go to YouTube. But okay, so part of the birthday package is that she gets to spend like, I don't know, 30 seconds a minute inside this. Um, oh, the, the like ticket blaster room. Yeah. And yeah. just get as many tickets. Mm-hmm, and, like a ticket machine. Yeah. And I feel like I should prepare her with a little bit of strategy for that. Does anyone know what that strategy is? Like, Oof. is there a way to like game the ticket booth to get as many tickets as possible? I have no idea. I've never done that before. No, I have some experience. I was like in eighth grade, I was in a money machine. And first of all, it's a real whirlwind when you're in there. Oh, I'm it's sure. Just sensory overload. There were dollar bills. I'm sure these are tickets. They're going to be crazy. Um, and a dollar was difficult to grab. So I can't even imagine trying to grab these With, like, tickets. With child these hands? tiny little like, hands. <laughs> what's going to happen? The, She's just going to freeze and not. Yes. I think you just need to like wrap her in duct tape. Like, oh. And just it. kind of. Or maybe like static. Her- like really wash her clothes for that day with every pair of gym shorts that you have in the house. <laughs> Just get that static charge really going. Again, like maybe an engineer could answer the question <laughs> or anyone else who's listening. That <laughs> No, I will say that uh, people who have tried the T-shirts, that doesn't work because you throw the T-shirt over the vent and it just blasts tickets or, or dollars up your neck and in oh, your face, mm-hmm. uh, rendering you blind. The one thing that worked for me is that there will be pockets where they'll get stuck that the fan just doesn't turn. So like look to the corners and snag those tickets. All right. And then go from there. But it is, how long is she in the machine? I don't know. Oh I, I just, I don't, like, I can't imagine that when she gets in there, she's just going to be, like, ready to go. So <laughs> I thought maybe I'd give her a few tips and then. Oh, Mark Waterman <laughs> says a quart of rubber <laughs> cement might help. Oh, no, I have a jar of, I bought a, when Spider Tack came out, yeah. is banned from the MLB. I bought it because I had to know. Um, and I thought it might help with dodgeball. We can cover her in Spider Tack or maybe just her clothes because it says don't let it touch your skin. Yeah. For obvious reasons. This is my child, though. Yeah. So no, I probably won't do We'll that just have again. a disposable shirt. <laughs> well, strict instructions. Don't touch anything. Just let the tickets come to you. Um, no, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, not just, um, ticket machine whisperers out yeah, there, yeah. but I feel like a lot of people ticket that machine whisperers, yeah, wow. that, that know how to like game the system in terms yeah. of, you know, what you're spending your tickets on, what machines or what games you play in order to get tickets. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like there's, there are just, there's gotta be like some Chuck E. Cheese, like expert that knows yeah. all the Chuck E. Cheese hacks. There right? has to be, because yeah. I mean, there was a man who watched every episode of the price is right with every prize and its associated cost in order to game the system. There's got to be somebody with that Chuck E. Cheese spreadsheet I'm going to check and see if ChuckECheeseHacks.com is a real website. <laughs> you guys can move on if you need to. Very good. Um, my final thought this week is uh, rather simple. Uh, sometimes when you're out walking around, sometimes you stumble upon uh, something beautiful and you want to share it with the world. Um, there are a lot of gifted artists in the United States and the world. And uh, it's just good that they'll grace us with their work that, you know, really stands to improve our lives and the lives of those around us. Um, Eric and Alex, if you could share this piece with everybody live, I just want everyone to know that when Jeff and I went to lunch the other day, we stumbled upon a truck with a beautiful tailgate portrait, if you will. Mosaic. Of... Sasquatch in the Burt Reynolds pose. What? But instead of a leaf covering Sasquatch delicates, it was a, it was a raccoon. 
It was a little raccoon. And uh, it was painted so spot on that it looked like Sasquatch and the raccoon were sitting in the open bed of the truck. Oh, here it is. <laughs> yeah. It is. First of all, it did not make me crave beef jerky. It didn't do that. But it made me, it made my life better for that day and every day forward. And I hope you all have a chance to take this in. You saw this in, really blur that in real life. Drink yeah. it all in. Yeah, yeah, we'll blur that. We'll blur it in post. You saw that in real life, huh? We saw that in real life. Not only, we were pulling in to the parking lot and I just straight at it like a magnet. I parked as close as I possibly could. And Jeff and I just sat there in silence for a moment, appreciating it. Um, I don't say I was appreciating it. I was more <laughs> pondering who has the amount of time and energy to spend doing that. If you have that ability, why a Sasquatch and a raccoon? Why in a 3D, not? you know, what would you truck put? Bed? Yeah, what would you put? Not that. I, I actually want to know now. What would you put on your truck bed? <laughs> I put in my truck bed. Yeah. I mean, I we're gonna have to let that marinate a little bit because I don't know how you top that. That's I mean, amazing. maybe maybe a Sasquatch family, mm-hmm. all nude, of course. Yeah. So we're going to need at least four to five raccoons. <laughs> raccoons? <laughs> you're saying it just to be. Yeah. I don't know. I'm baiting you guys in. But so if you're listening to the audio version of this, I'll put this on. Uh, I'll put it on Twitter, I guess, at D James Manny, or just come and check out the podcast, the video version, because you must see it. It is glorious. And if anything, it'll make you smile. And if you're having a bad day ever, just please pull this photo up. And man. It's pretty good. It's you you good. do need to see it. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, you need to dwell on it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, quit shaving my Sasquatch. <laughs> what <funny>. is <laughs> what is your final thought this week? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how to follow that. Actually, the one, that. Thing, one thing I did want to say is we I did have a little bit of oversight. We were going through everybody. We were, you know, talking about the 100th episode, played a part. You know, really do need to give a shout out to like Ben and Nolan do a lot of the oh. stories and Andy's all the best pinch hitter in the league. Too, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, for everything that they've done. Too. It's so like the Oscars. That. You know, when you do the acceptance speech, you miss some people. I know. The so. music was playing Jeff off. He, he yes. couldn't get all that in. So, so appreciate those guys, too. Uh, we also had a podcast polling question. The mm. first one. So we asked, uh, going through the last 100 episodes, which country outside the U.S. has been mentioned the most frequently? What's your guys' guess? I was going to guess China or Russia. You could, I mean, Russia, I think, would have been a, a favorite. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think I, would, I would, was going to also guess China. Yeah. It is China, and it wasn't really that close. Oh, Definitely yeah. It was China. What actually was interesting was Russia and Mexico were right like neck and neck, basically. Yeah. Um, India, Germany, not so much. But those three were definitely the most prominent, which kind of gives some insight, too, as to the things that are going on in the industrial sector. Uh, a lot of things in Russia from – an energy and um, aerospace perspective, Mexico more with a lot of nearshoring. Uh, we were just talking about Tesla looking at a plant there. So interesting what's going on there. Was it the chip shortage that uh, tipped it in China's favor or just was There's it just so far lot. away? Oh, okay. a lot. I mean, remember we have like an espionage case yeah. oh, story yeah, or something, yeah. just a lot going oh, on yeah, there. Just anything from that what is it called, like the talent program or whatever? We've run so many stories on. Well, what was interesting is we, there were some that were not on here. Like we ran a lot of, we talked a lot about the Suez Canal. Oh, <laughs> so we ended up having oh yeah. Egypt popped up uh, a little yeah. more frequently. Okay. So what is the Suez Canal doing? <laughs> Nobody's Open? talking about it anymore. Yeah. Open. Um, next week, the podcast poll. Looking at the stuff we discussed in this episode, just want to throw this out there. If you weren't uh, working what you do 
working what you do. There's some good word usage. Mm-hmm. If you weren't doing what you do right now, where would you rather work? Would you rather be in retail like Amazon? Software development, we talked about Salesforce. Vehicle repair service, kind of looking at the things we talked about with John Deere and making some of that information available. Or, you know, farming, which will go down in infamy as the time that Anna swore during the <laughs> podcast. Or if there's something else, we'd just be curious, what, uh, what are some other walks of life that might be of interest to you and that, uh, you know, have a correlation to the industrial sector? Anna's cussing. Um, and we won't rat anybody out to their boss for saying that they'd rather work in retail. What I would say is looking at these like Mm. Burlington Code Factory. That's where I would. You and I have both worked in retail. Yeah, I've worked at a repair shop. Mm -hmm. I've worked in the farm. So, just haven't done any (laughs) software development. I have not done any. It would be weird if we had. Yeah. Yeah. I started Um, in software development. (laughs) Yeah. My software development ended with a keyboarding class where I had to build a house using code that was a square and a triangle, and it took me days. We do have somebody in this room who got their start in software development. That's true. I believe. One nerd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ever-popular software to podcast producer tracked. So take a look at the podcast poll. Let us know and uh, go from there. All right. Well, before we get out of here this week, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could really help us out a lot for, by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Over the holiday, we had a chance to read some of the reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on YouTube, and we're very thankful for those. Thank you for all the kind words. We appreciate it. Keep them coming. That really helps us grow the podcast. Um, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get the podcast delivered to your inbox first. And please subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine and join us live like Mark is today. We really appreciate everybody that's joining us in the live chats. You help keep it fresh. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.